Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening today, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg and only Sam. It's a two-man show today. We'll be discussing what Elon Musk is up to, particularly with Twitter, the push to cancel student loan debt, the emergence of a new political epithet in groomer. But first, I want to go to France, not just because I hear it's lovely in spring, but because there was a uh, an election, presidential election, the first round of which has been held, and in the runoff, it will be a rematch of the 2017 presidential election between Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. As I said, they uh, matched up in 2017 back then. Uh, Macron won 66 percent of the vote to Le Pen's almost 34 uh, percent. Macron, of course, has a term under his belt. He had come into that year, uh, that presidential election, describing himself as neither of the left nor of the right. So he is of this kind of third wayist uh, way of thinking about doing politics. But what is interesting to me, and before I toss it to you, Sam, is the story and trajectory of Le Pen and National Front as a party. Uh, of course, uh, Marine. Uh, Marine Le Pen is the daughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen, who was the president of National Front from 1972 through 2011. This party, of course, focused on uh, opposing immigration, opposition to the EU, traditional cultural values, law and order. Uh, Le Pen, the the father himself, also had a history with uh, anti-Semitism. He was once prosecuted for Holocaust denial, ran for president five times and what's interesting when you look at those results uh, for the five times that, uh, again, the father Le Pen ran, to see where National Front started off and to see where it has ended up. In 1974, he got 0.7% of the vote, finished in seventh place, uh, up to 14% in 1988 in fourth place. 95, 15% in fourth place, got into a runoff in 2002 with 16.9% of the vote uh, lost in the runoff. And in 2007, 10% of the vote came in fourth, uh, lost there as well. Uh, His daughter, Marine Le Pen, has performed and continued to improve the reputation of her party. She had pursued a de-demonization of the National Front. In 2012, uh, she ran and came in third place with 18% and, of course, got into a runoff in 2017 and will be in another runoff with Macron this time. Sam, what are we to make of all of this? Well, there's a lot to make of the French presidential election first round results. It's worth just reminding our listeners that in France, the way it works is that uh, If you get a sufficient number of nominations from people who are mayors, members of the National Assembly, etc., you run for president. You can run for president. So in the first round, there's typically quite a few candidates who run. And then we go through to a second round where the two highest winners of the first round go through. And that's when the people decide who's actually going to be the president of France for a five-year term. So there's a lot of different interesting things that have happened or have been manifested as a result of uh, this particular uh, first-round election. Uh, first, uh, the first thing is that Macron is unlikely to get anything like what he got in the first, first time round when he ran back in 2017. Uh, I, it's going to be much closer this time. Uh, And there's many reasons for that. One is uh, he's been, uh, I think, a disappointment for many people as a president. His position of, as you say, holding the sort of equidistant position from the left and from the right has meant that he's been involved in presenting himself in any number of 
contradictions as he tries to placate different groups on the left and the right, which means that you also alienate many people on the right and the left who might otherwise have supported you. Uh, so that's, that's one thing that's going on. So this is interesting because what it tells us is that Jupiter, as he's called in France, has fallen from the great heights of Mount Olympus, so to speak, and is now viewed very much as just another politician. So that's the first thing. The second thing to note about uh, these election results is that the mainstream establishment parties of the left and the right, the right, it's Les Républicains, which is the sort of traditional Gaullist party, uh, and the Socialist Party, which is the more mainstream, traditional left, centre-left party, the, the Republicans, Les Républicains, they, they scored just under 5% of the vote. The Socialist Party couldn't even crack 2%. In fact, the Socialist Party was beaten by the Communist Party. <laughs> so this is really interesting because what it tells us is that these mainstream parties that have dominated so much of French politics for such a long time, since the beginning of the Fifth Republic in 1958, are basically shadows of themselves. In fact, if you go through the election results and you add up all the parties that are what you might call non-establishment parties or the party that is not in government, which is Macron's party, it gets to something like just about 60% of the people who voted in France yesterday, Sunday, the 10th of April, just about 60% voted for non-establishment parties. So I think that's, that's a very significant development because what it tells us, so they voted for, uh, a big chunk of them voted for Marine Le Pen, a big chunk of them voted for Eric Zemmour, but also a big chunk of them voted for the far-left candidate, a man named Jean-Luc Merquillon. And he got something like 20% 20, 20 of the vote. So this tells, this is very reflective, I think, of a lot of trends that are going on in Europe as a whole when it comes to people's voting patterns. People don't care anymore about the sort of stigma that might be attached to voting for Le Pen's National Rally Party, as it's called now, or for the far-left candidate, or for Eric Zemmour, who is even, is, is a, even more of a non-establishment ca character than many of these other people. So it reflects disillusionment with mainstream political parties. It reflects a willingness of people to say and vote as they actually think out loud. Uh, and so, and what, so to give you a sense of what this might be like, what happened yesterday would be like the Republican Party and the Democratic Party in the United States, both polling about 4% of the vote. Now, French political system is very different. Parties are more fluid. There's, uh, there's more factionalization within and between parties. Uh, the parties function as a, less as a catch-all group and much more as, ex of ex as expressions of particular ideological positions. But this is, this is pretty astounding. So my guess is that this election, the next round, which will be held in basically two weeks' time, which is forever in politics, will be much, much closer than it was five years ago. And Macron is, I think, rightly concerned that he's not going to get, a, if he wins, it's not going to be by very much. Even more so, his capacity to win a majority of seats in the legislature, in the National Assembly, must now be thrown into that doubt. Now, here's another thing. The, some of the other parties outside Macron and Le Pen, are now declaring who they want their supporters to vote for. So Zemmour has said, yes, go and vote for Le Pen. Uh, the head of the Republicain, she has said, please vote for uh, Macron. But of course, she only got 4% of the vote, so <laughs> it's not quite clear that her opinion matters that much. The socialists' opinion, since they got even less than 2%, doesn't really seem to matter very much. But what's interesting is the far-left candidate. He has said basically this. He said um, uh, more or less along the lines of, um, I, who, I, you know who I don't want you to vote for. Now, I think he means by that Le Pen. 
But what's interesting about the far left in France is that I suspect a fair number of people who voted for the far left party, a significant portion, not a majority, but a significant portion of them will shift their vote to Le Pen. Because when it comes to economic questions, when it comes to some of the various social dysfunctionalities that are very widespread in, in France right now, uh, when it comes to people wanting more government intervention in the economy, Le Pen is actually closer to the far left's position on some of those issues than Macron. It's also interesting to look at the map of France and you see things like traditional strongholds of the left, the French left, places like Marseille in the southern coast of, of France, for example, which were once pretty much strongholds of the socialist left. Le Pen got the plurality of the vote in some of these particular areas. So I think this all points us in the direction of all the assumptions that we've long held about politics in France, but I think Europe more generally, particularly continental Western Europe, all those assumptions are now gone. So it reflects, I think, you know, dissatisfaction with establishment parties, a willingness on the part of voters to vote for people who they might have been embarrassed to vote for or not talked about voting for even five years ago. All those things uh, have changed. So I think it reflects some broad trends that are going on in Western countries right now. Uh, and I, we haven't seen the end of this, by the way, either. The I, I never liked horseshoe theory, the horseshoe theory of political right. ideologies that, you know, as you um, – uh, extremes actually kind of come together to meet because uh, that – it it never made sense to me except to have witnessed the last I don't know how many years, right, where you have all these Bernie Sanders voters uh, who when they were asked about it were like, you know, uh, a lot of them were like, yeah, I could probably vote for Trump, right? You know, Trump is um, – uh, it talks about in the same economic populist way that Bernie Sanders did or a similar economic populist way. They're not the same. And if we um, – I, I just recently did an interview with Matthew Continetti about his new book, The Right – which he's very careful to point out that he's what what Trump did is not steal the agenda because he has this great line in there about Bill Clinton that in Clinton uh, stole the agenda of conservatives throughout the 90s and they never forgave him for it. Like so many of the things that Clinton enacted, like welfare reform, were yeah, NAFTA were ideas from the right that he basically just ate the right's lunch on. And Continetti made the good point that if you look at the Trump administration, it was a, a pretty central casting center-right Republican administration. But the rhetoric was to me so remarkably different from Trump in this populist vein. And I think this is what – again, I, I will state my uh, – Far from Sam's level of knowledge about what is going on in France here. But you do see these populist trends continuing. I think Le Pen is clearly a part of that. And you see this horseshoeing thing continue as well, where there is there are some connections between the far left in this case and the far right in this presidential election. So, Sam, let, let me ask you this. If Macron wins in two weeks – what will that mean? And if Le Pen wins, what will that mean? Well, if it is the case that Macron wins, and at this point, I'd say that that is the more likely possibility, although I have to say, I'm not sure I would say the same thing in maybe a week's time, because as the polls got closer and closer for yesterday's election, Le Pen radically narrowed the gap between her uh, and Mac Macron, and Macron, of course, is an incumbent. He's not a particularly popular incumbent. He's seen as a sort. He's seen basically as the McKinsey's McKinsey's candidate to be president. And uh, I can tell you right now that uh, that type of image is nothing is not something that goes down well with lots of people in France, even a majority of people in France. If Macron wins. It will be by a much smaller majority than he won in 2017. It's unlikely at this point that he will win a majority of seats in the National Assembly. So he's going to have a much harder time getting through a lot of his agenda, his domestic agenda, which has sort of been a type of mild economic liberalisation, although he's backtracked on that 
in different instances. Uh, he will probably, I think, focus a lot more, as a lot of presidents do in different countries, upon foreign policy uh, in his uh, second term, because then you don't have to think so much about <laughs> the messy details of domestic policy, which in some respects is much harder. So that's how I, I think would that's how I think that would play out. If Marine Le Pen wins, then it's a totally different ballgame because one, she's a mild Eurosceptic. Macron is a Europhile, EU-file, I should say. So there would be some change in rhetoric, if not some policies vis-a-vis -vis the European Union and France. I don't think it will change very much in terms of France's position vis-a-vis. Um, what's going on in Ukraine, because Macron has sort of tried to play a mediating role, which hasn't worked out so well. And to be a mediator, you sort of have to distance yourself from some of the other European Union countries. So I'm not sure Le Marine Le Pen would try and assume such a role, but I think you would see a more sceptical view of the EU emerging, a view which, by the way, is very widespread throughout France. Uh, remember, back in the early 2000s, the French rejected the European constitution pretty decisively. And the whole European project is seen as sort of a project of the establishment of the elites. So if Le Pen gets elected and starts to wind back the Euro EU philia of Macron, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I think you would also see a return to some of the more economic nationalist positions, economically nationalist positions that have been the norm in France for a very long period of time. I don't think she'd get a majority of seats in the National Assembly, so she'd have similar issues as Macron will have in terms of getting things through the legislature. But here's the other thing, Eric. French politics in general over the past 10 years, has moved very much in a right-wing direction. So if you count up and add all the people who voted for the right, be it centre-right, uh, right, far-right, it's pretty clear that that is where the epi political epicentre of the country is now. The, the left is very much uh, a reduced presence in French politics. So what this means is that Whatever happens in two weeks' time, French politicians are going to continue orientating themselves towards these more traditional uh, right-wing positions. We'll see this manifested in economic policy. We'll certainly see this manifested in things like immigration uh, policy. We'll see this when it comes to how France behaves on the national stage. So regardless who wins there is going to be a continuing rightward shift of French politics. I mean, I would estimate that something like, you know, 65% of French citizens today view themselves as being more or less on the right. That's extraordinary, considering uh, how weak centre-right and right-wing parties are in Western Europe generally right now. Well, we will have plenty of time to talk more about this with the presidential runoff coming in two weeks. So for now, I'm going to move on to Elon Musk, who is never anything if not entertaining. Uh, Elon Musk now owns somewhere around 9.2% of shares of Twitter, which he uh, bought up to become the largest single shareholder, uh, the biggest shareholder for Twitter. He's one of those followed people on the platform with about 80.5 million Twitter followers. And this whole thing kind of came as a surprise and produced some very interesting freakouts, especially from those inside Twitter, where you had a handful of them announcing on the platform that they were going to quit their jobs because of what Elon Musk's investment in the company and the say that he would have when it was believed he was going to be joining the board of Twitter. Uh, yesterday, it was made public that Musk is not going to join the board of Twitter, which was initially baffling to some people until uh, 
essentially the deal that they were going to make with him for joining the board was that it would limit the amount of stock that he could purchase to, I believe, 14.9%. He couldn't own any more than that. So this seems to suggest, if he's not going to join the board, that he has an interest in buying up even more shares of this. Um, you know, don't know if he can get to a controlling stake in Twitter. Uh, although the interesting thing is that for somebody as with as many billions of dollars as Musk is, uh, Twitter is valued, you know, total valuation is much, much lower than Facebook or Google. So it is not out of the realm of possibility, I don't think, that he could certainly buy up enough shares to have, uh, you know, even beyond just being the largest single shareholder, a huge influence on what the company does. And a lot of this, people have assumed, is going to be about free speech on the platform, that people uh, – we all know the problems and I've referenced Twitter. All of us have referenced Twitter on this program before. Uh, their problem with banning speech that they deem to be objectionable. And of course, there's all kinds of double standards that they can point to that Donald Trump is not up there, but, you know, the Ayatollah of Iran is still tweeting. Um, take, take from all of that what you will. I, that, I just think it is interesting to have watched the reaction <clears throat> to what Elon Musk does. Uh, this guy who kind of got to where he was uh, as coming out of Silicon Valley, got enormous government subsidies in order to start Tesla uh, and build this electric car company. And it was now kind of turned into this tech utopian libertarian who doesn't talk about his politics all that much, but nonetheless, I think is an interesting character. And I thought the reaction that Twitter people had to it was very revealing. Yes, there's all sorts of interesting things about uh, this. So, for example, the first thing you mentioned, that uh, the, deal, the deal was initially that he would come onto the board, but uh, he would be limited to buying 14.9%, which means that, what is it, 85.1% of the shares would belong to other people. The fact that he declined that uh, tells us that either one of two things. One... He's bored and he's made his point and he's not particularly interested in going to board meetings uh, with a group of people I suspect he doesn't like that much and uh, who, are <laughs> who in some respects have indicated they don't like Americans very much. But I, I think it's, that's, that's a distinct possibility. He's just not particularly interested in this. He, he's, his attention span has, has shifted. Or he uh, is positioning himself or threatening to position himself to buy up more stock in Twitter and could easily get himself to the point whereby he becomes a majority shareholder. And then, of course, he'd have to decide whether he actually wants to do anything about that or whether the simply owning majority stock will be a send of enough of a signal to Twitter that all the problems you just referenced, uh, Eric, have to stop now and need to go Away, and my guess is he's also going to look at you know the bottom line, how much how profitable the company is, as well. So that's I think that's that's fascinating. It also suggests, for example, that maybe using market forces to deal with some of these particular problems that many people associate with not just Twitter but other forms of social media uh, could turn out in the future to be far more effective than using things like antitrust law and other such things to try and uh, change the way that many people who work at Twitter or on the board of Twitter, the way that they view the world or the way that they understand their role in terms of questions of free speech on the internet. So there's a lot of different things that could that could play out here. Uh, but if I, I think if I was on the board of Twitter, if I was the CEO of Twitter, I'd be very, very nervous <laughs> given that he has said well, you know, no, I don't think I'll go on the board. I'd be very nervous. And that there was a message that the CEO of Twitter set out on Twitter <laughs> uh, last night, I think it was. Uh, it was very carefully worded, but it, I read it very carefully. And it seems to me that they are distinctly nervous about what is likely to happen, what Elon Musk might do. And he's a complex character, right? We, in some respects, it's very difficult to know where he might go. Because on the one hand, you know, he did benefit from a lot of government subsidies and things like that at the beginning of part of his career. And now he's sort of emerged the techno-utopian libertarian, sort of inclined to upload himself to the internet one day in the future <laughs> in the way that some of these people talk. 
but has also expressed some pretty clear concerns about um, free speech and the way that the left broadly construed is dealing with any number of particular questions. He also holds a lot of views that are unconventional, at least in terms of how, let's call it, uh, a lot of uh, more established people think. So, for example, he's very big on the idea that we need a lot more people in this world. He's been very, very articulate about, no, this, this population bomb myth propagated in the 1960s in which people above a certain age cling to with uh, almost desperation. It hasn't happened that way. We've actually got the other problem. We have a population deficit that is really starting to affect the United States and lots of other countries, as well as things like the basic functioning of welfare systems. So Musk is a very interesting character, but he's very unpredictable. And I think that is what I will be worrying people at Twitter this morning. He's also very clearly having fun. So oh, yes. he, he is also the founder of SpaceX, um, which has revolutionized, uh, revolutionized space travel. And he, he always says that his, his goal is to die on Mars, but not on impact. Uh, that he, when he became public, that he was buying the share, the huge share of Twitter. He put a Twitter poll out where he asked, do you want an edit button? Which is a very online Twitter online question. If you're on Twitter, there's a bunch of people obsessed with the idea that you should be able to edit your tweets after you have sent them. And the poll options were, uh, Y S E and O N. Purposely spelling yes and no wrong because yes. he would want an edit button. So he's very clearly having a good time. And I, I think, Sam, that is one of the reasons why the left does not like him is that he is – go back to my point that uh, I brought up from Matt Continetti's book about how Bill Clinton appropriated the agenda of conservatives in the 1990s and made it his own. Elon Musk has been doing that for a lot of things that a lot of people on the left have cared about for a very long time. He created electric cars, Sam. I mean, a actual ownable, on a trajectory to be commonly ownable electric car, which is something that for all the attempts, you know, the, the hybrids that you had, the Prius is everywhere, but it's not a fully electric car. Um, the Volt legendarily had problems where it was catching on fire, the Chevy Volt. Uh, he's created this car that is electric, fully electric, incredibly cool, and again, on a trajectory to be affordable for people. And there's something about that that causes the left to absolutely resent him. Because being environmentally conscious like this shouldn't be fun, right? You shouldn't be able to do it in a fashionable way and be done by a guy who's having fun. I mean, how many times have we heard the rhetoric of if we can put a man on the moon or people lionizing how NASA has uh, operated, how important NASA was in the history of this country? And there's an absolutely true part of that argument for the historic importance of NASA, what putting a man on the moon meant. But what Musk did is reveal how moribund NASA had become. We discontinued the shuttle program in part because it, for all the government funding that flowed into NASA, they weren't able to come up with what Musk was able to come up with, which is a rocket that gets you into space and then returns to Earth and lands so that you don't have these one-use, high-cost rocket boosters that are what get you into space. He's doing interesting things, and he's having a good time doing it. Many things that are important to people on the left, and they just absolutely can't stand him for it. And he's also doing these things through private means, right? So it's, he's, not, he's basically saying, look, if you want to do some of these things, there are ways to do it, but you don't actually need the government to engage in many of these programs. So while you probably remember, Eric, was it during the, was it during the Obama administration that NASA announced that combating Islamophobia was going to be one of its major objectives and people were saying, really? That's, that's your, one of your objectives? I thought your objective was to space travel and space exploration and all these sorts of things. So uh, he's, he's a very unconventional figure and he holds a lot of positions that I, mean, I would certainly disagree with on, on all sorts of different questions. But because he's unconventional, because he's unpredictable, he introduces an element, a high element of uncertainty 
that is going to bother a lot of people on the political left who have long held to particular positions about how certain things ought to happen and the speed at which they happen and who's going to be making them happen. So I think the people at Twitter today who work at Twitter, who are on the board of Twitter, uh, I think they're very nervous because they just don't know what's going to happen next. They can guess, we can guess, we can have make some speculation about these sorts of things. But if, if you like, his decision not to go on the board is a sort of shot across the bowels, right? It's, it's signaling, no, I'm not going to be locked into a nice, comfortable board position, which would oblige me to defend positions that I suspect I don't want to defend. So, the, so that doesn't, no, he has not announced that he wants to buy up more stock, but that's part of the uncertainty, right? One last note on, on Elon Musk that I think y- you have pointed to and I think is important and I think is actually relevant to what he seems to want to be doing here with Twitter, which is bring it back to being more of a free speech platform that I, I have always been of the mind that for Facebook, for Twitter, that, you know, everybody points out that, you know, uh, when people make First Amendment adjacent arguments about social media, that it's not a government entity, so they don't have to abide by the First Amendment. But expecting their policy or wanting their policy to be in the spirit of the First Amendment, I think is uh, would be good for them. It would be a smart policy choice that they could make. I mean, there's there's legal free speech constructs and there's the culture of free speech. And a lot of what is happening here is fly, flying in the face of the culture of freedom of speech. Musk is interesting, as you pointed out, because he has his eccentricities. He has his weirdness about him. He has this unconventionality in his views that I've thought about this a number of times. The way that we are squelching of people who are eccentric in some way. And this is you know, the kind of people who would say bizarre things and get them kicked off of, uh, of Twitter or Facebook for doing so. Some of them are awful and malicious, but many of them are just, you know, we could point back through time to people who were brilliant in their own certain ways, but also had crazy views. Alexander Graham Bell wanted to create the telephone so he could commune with the dead. Um, Charles Nikolai Ford, Tesla. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> The environmentalist and utopian socialist uh, uh, Francois Charles Fourier, who believed that, you know, if you had this equitable utopian socialist dividing up of all the land so that every individual person has exactly the same amount of lands, it, if his system was implemented, he literally believed it would turn the ocean into lemonade. It, there are people with wild, eccentric, crazy beliefs. There are plenty, especially throughout American history. And I worry that our Lack of toleration for people who are brilliant in one way, but also have these eccentricities to not just say, yeah, that's kind of weird, but look at what else they've done. And to want to say, no, you can't express those kinds of views and to push them out of society altogether is going to produce you know, an upcoming generation of people who don't have those eccentric thinkers, who don't have those incredibly creative personalities. Uh, it, that kind of thing worries me. So I, I, I'm interested in what Musk is doing because he seems to be in some sense an embodiment of that and also engaged in some kind of shareholder activism here to perhaps push that kind of vision of the world a little farther. Right. And he's, he's as you say, a very unconventional figure. And last week, he turned up at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado. You can watch it online. He's giving this rousing reception by one of the the uh, four service academies. So this is a man who goes into a place which is, you know, very much a sort of military establishment place, and is cheered to the rafters. So it's it's so I think you're right. This is it's reflective of what's going on with him and Twitter. Is reflective of how some people on the left are reacting when suddenly they find their positions being challenged from within, their certainties being challenged, and people co-opting some of their ideas and suggesting, oh, there's a different way we can do this. Um, but also the way in which we tend to treat people who are regarded as a little eccentric. Now, I happen to think America is much better at accommodating people who have eccentric views who are very creative in ways that sometimes we like and sometimes we think, what the heck are they talking about? Much more accepting than a lot of other countries. Uh, but it's, it's going to be very interesting to see where he goes in terms of how he talks and thinks about 
political subjects and the way what this means for some of the conventional ways in which we think about right-left divisions in this country. I want to move on to our next topic, which Sam brought me what I think is one of one of my favorite headlines in recent memory here from Politico. Uh, White House uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki, student loan borrowers likely to have to pay debt sometime, sometime, we don't know when, but sometime. The Biden administration has announced that they are extending the uh, moratorium on uh, student loan payments. This is, boy, this certainly brings to mind for me and probably for you too as well, Sam, um, the great line from Milton Friedman that there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. Uh, This temporary push off of student loan payments that started at the beginning of the pandemic and continues to exist with us. Um, And you can understand from a political perspective why Joe Biden would want to do that because, you know, who wants to pay money off your student loan debt for a important constituency? Uh, He believes uh, they don't want to do it. And so he is able to keep pressing this button and say that they don't have to do it. But the problem is, uh, as this headline implies, is that um, they recognize that there's a reason that uh, they need to get people back to paying these debts at some point. Hence the promise in the future. But it's going to be very difficult for them to rip that Band-Aid off. And it has produced all kinds of calls, as you might imagine, for uh, canceling student loan debt. Bernie Sanders uh, expressed such sentiment just a few days ago. Uh, I want to give some basic facts here so people understand the statistics on student loan debt in the year of our Lord 2022. U.S. student loan debt totals about $1.6 trillion. Uh, Of that, 92% of it is owned by the U.S. Department of Education. These are government loans. So only about 8% is actually private. So most of these people owe money to the government. Um, Now, for the typical type of uh, education attainment, uh, your bachelor's degree debt is somewhere close to $29,000. Graduate loan debt, $71,000. Law school debt, $145,000. Medical school debt, over $200,000. Dental school debt, almost $300,000. So uh, the point here should be obvious, but I will make it anyway. Um, We live in a country where not – I'll look up in a moment here the actual percentage of people with a bachelor's degree or more. It is not a majority of the country. So we're talking about a smallish constituency, um, the majority of which are bachelor's degree holders who could potentially have somewhere around $30,000 in debt, give or take. Again, that is an average. But just by point of comparison, uh, I went and looked up at a local car dealer here. Uh, a 2022 Honda Accord is about $31,000. A 2022 Honda CRV is about $32,000. So this is about equivalent of buying a new car, getting a four-year bachelor's degree. The majority of the people who have the interest in this cancellation of student debt are people who have advanced degrees. Highly correlated with people with advanced degrees are high earnings, lawyers, tend to make a lot of money. Doctors, dentists tend to make a lot of money. So what what is amazing to me about this, and I will let uh, Sam let you dilate on perhaps not just the economics, but the morality of such a suggestion, is that this is a giveaway of money to, by and large, wealthier, highly educated people. And it's not this great populist move that it is often portrayed as. The number, uh, the, by and large, the numbers tell us these are people with very high earning potentials or incomes who also, to get to the position they're in, took out a whole lot of student debt to do so. So, Sam, I'll let you uh, reflect on not just the economics of this, which I think uh, should be obvious at this point that they don't make sense, but I'll let you uh, hammer that nail into, uh, into the table if you wish. <laughs> But also the the morality of this idea of this magical thinking that we can just cancel it and it goes away. Right. I mean, there's so much that could be said about this particular subject. So first of all, as you say, this is not a question of putting off payments for debt by people who are uh, poor. This is basically 
middle class, and in some cases, upper middle class welfare. For people who are earning a great deal of money already, in the, already quite early in their careers, and now they're sort of being let off the hook. Uh, it's effectively uh, <laughs> it's effectively allowing a segment of the population that is more economically and apparently politically affluent than a lot of other parts of the population. It's basically letting off them off the hook for debts that they freely entered into. No one forced them to take out student loans. They chose to do this themselves, and they did so on the calculation that it was worth making taking out debt at that level for that period of time for these degrees with the expectation that they would be earning uh, significant amounts of money in the future that would more than, more than easily take care of their ability to pay off these debts. So it's, 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 it's a very problematic move because debt involves a type of implicit contract, right? Then the state comes in and says, well, no, the contract is suspended until it's suspended, until it's suspended, until we decide that we're going to make it real again. This just disrupts not just the the economics of this all and sends the message that if you take out lots of student debt, then if a particular type of administration is in power, there's always the possibility that that administration will let you off the hook, which creates all sorts of moral hazard problems, economically speaking. But it also represents a rupture in the the creditor-debtor relationship by the state. And it's doing so in a way that there's nothing... There's nothing sort of definitive about this. It's not like they're saying, okay, we're cancelling everything. They're just saying, no, no, we're just going to put it off until the next time when we probably will put it off again. It's bad economics. It's ethically extremely dubious. And it favours a portion of the population. Uh, It basically favours a portion of the population that is Affluent. So for all the talk about struggling students and all that, yes, there are people in that position. But let's be very clear. There's a large number of people who are benefiting from this and when they are actually in a position to be paying off significant portions of their loans as they promised to do so when they entered into those loan contracts in the first place. So there's nothing particularly economically sensible about this. This is an ethically questionable move, and it sends very bad signals to students or those who are considering taking out student debt in the future. I mean, hopefully, my view is that hopefully it will continue to expose what a racket so much of higher education has become and cause more and more people to ask themselves serious questions about the degree to which They want to enter into these types of relationships with uh, universities and colleges and the type of student loans that often go along with that. There'll be, I think, more and more people will continue to ask themselves some questions about whether this actually makes long-term economic sense. You are totally right that uh, people freely chose to enter into these contracts. However, I will say I am entirely here for a conversation about the pressure that we start putting on children at an earlier and earlier point in time that tells them you have to go to college and you have to go to college right out after you get out of high school. I don't think that that is particularly healthy. (laughs) I can say – You know, I did not have, as my uh, college degree in music will show, a clear sense of what I wanted to do with my life when I was 18 years old. Um, Now, there was a value to the college education that I got. There is no denying that. I don't deny that for a moment. But the idea that you have this, you know, very focused sense of what you want to do. Uh, is just I, – I, I don't think it holds true and I think we should remove that kind of pressure that is being put on students about college, 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 college. It is not for everybody. It should not be for everybody. There are plenty of other things you can do with your life. There are plenty of other ways you can get into the workforce. You can get into jobs that will give you enough earning potential to live a good and happy and comfortable life. There are other ways to do it and we should be talking more about those. It just it always reminds me of uh, Brian Kaplan in his case uh, book, The Case Against Education, had this great hypothetical, whereas um, if you're uh, on 
a stranded on a desert island and I were to offer you either the training from a survival uh, course or the certificate of completion without the training from a survival course, which would you want? Well, you'd want the training. If I were to tell you I would offer you a Harvard education without the diploma or a Harvard diploma without the education, which would you choose? And the fact that most people would pause to think about that for a moment tells you what these college degrees are doing. They're signaling devices. They are credentialing devices. And I'm interested in some kind of potential Elon Musk character out there who might be able to find some way to undermine this and create another system for credentialing. Charlie Cook, Charles C.W. Cook in National Review, I just had thought had a great way of, of framing this in response to Bernie Sanders, cancel all student debt, all of it. Uh, the money has already been spent by the borrower and the debt already incurred by the lender. It can't be canceled. The liability can only be transferred from the people who borrowed it to buy a service to the people who did not do that. And in the case, go back to what I said about 92 percent of this being loans uh, owned by the U.S. Department of Education. This is um, basically future government revenue that is not going to be coming in, which means to deal with the current financial mess that this country is in. We would be, if we got Bernie Sanders got his way, cutting off the repayment of those loans, which means it will be transferred to taxpayers, which, as is being pointed out here by you and by Charlie Cook, are people who didn't go to college, didn't get the benefit of that, and didn't take out those loans. There is just no moral or ethical case for transferring the burden of people who got some that value out of an education, a college education, and in many cases, again, the people we're talking about here have master's or doctorate degrees. Hey, if they are lawyers or doctors or dentists or veterinarians. And saying that, you know, you, the person in Sandusky, Ohio, um, who, you know, the plant you worked at closed down five years ago, now you're going to be paying part of this off for this person. There is no justification for that whatsoever, but it certainly hasn't reduced the political appeal um, to people who are making these arguments. Sure. And it also reflects the fact that the political left have particular constituencies that they believe they want to take care of, which in this case is what they believe is one of their, they think is one of their natural constituencies. I'm not sure that's entirely the case, but I think that's how they often view these sorts of things. Um, But they're willing to do it, as you say, at the expense of the wider population. It also reflects the the degree of fiscal irresponsibility that has just become even more manifest over the past few years. And it's not something, by the way, that's just limited to the political left, right? There's plenty of people on the right who play fast and loose with fiscal responsibility, who make decisions that particularly affect and benefit particular groups at the expense of others. So this is not just a left phenomena. You find plenty of this on the right as well. And there's very few people who are willing to sort of say, no, this is just fiscally problematic. And that at some point we need to make decisions that are fiscally responsible, even if they are politically unpopular. So, I mean, that's sort of my broader worry about these things is that both on the left and the right, fiscal responsibility is becoming at best a third level concern. Megan McArdle from the Washington Post uh, had a great explanation for why this issue, despite what we've described, who these actual debt holders are, the uh, size of the even potential constituency in 2020, about 37.5 percent of the U.S. population who are aged 25 and above had at least a bachelor's degree. Um, so 37.5 percent, you know, not even talking a majority of the population. She had an interesting explanation for why it continues to have as much salience as it does, because People who are journalists, people who write about what is happening in news and politics are in a weird place with this because they are people often with degrees from universities, some of them even master's degrees, went to journalism school. So they are in a profession that is not uh, all that financially remunerative at this point. You're not making a whole heck of a lot as a journalist, and they have a whole lot of student loan debt. So they are a very important constituency within this small constituency who are very 
invested in the idea of having not to pay back tens of thousands of dollars on the salary that they're earning as a journalist at, you know, the uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I can absolutely understand. I think there's a lot of uh, truth in that explanation that McArdle offered there. Uh, I, I want to move now to our final topic for today, which is we talked a couple weeks ago about this law in Florida, which has been termed by its opponents the don't say gay law. Um, I don't have all that much more to say about that, but I I was just kind of have been annoyed by what has been transpiring, the debate that has been happening about this, um, which is people on the right, uh, when this law is being criticized by people on the left, have taken to calling the people who have a problem with this law Groomers. Now, groomers or grooming is something that has a definition. It is the act of uh, pedophiles to kind of mentally manipulate children into a position where they can sexually take advantage of those children. And now it is being used just simply as an epithet by some people on the right in the way that – and I I understand this argument. This argument has a lot of purchase right now that we have to fight fire with fire. So they're going to call us racists. So we're going to call them groomers. And I am just – I'm disgusted by the whole thing. Um, I – my ability to understand why it is happening – does not mean then that in any way I think it is appropriate to grant either uh, clear or tacit approval to that kind of thing going on. One, because I think it is incredibly devaluing of something that is very serious, which is grooming and pedophilia. And I don't think we want to devalue that any more than people on the right have made the argument for a long time about those on the left that hurl the term racist about that you're devaluing the meaning of it and the importance of something that is terrible by lobbing it at everyone. But I also just don't see how it is advancing any kind of a meaningful conversation about all of this and is just another example to me of how degraded our civic culture has become when you have horrible political epithets like this. And again, I know the history that you've had awful things said in politics and politics is ain't beanbag. I know all of that. But that doesn't mean that we should be in a position where we're condoning Or even, I think, just ignoring and saying, well, I'm going to let this really awful thing happen that I wouldn't excuse if my brother did it and I wouldn't excuse if my children did it. But because people I don't know who are on the Internet are doing it and they're saying it at people I don't like and I think don't like me, well, then that's just fine and I'm not going to – I'm going to pretend like it's just not happening. Well, I think the trigger, for want of a better expression, about this, this use of the phrase – was the revelations about the Disney Corporation, right? So I think this is where the trigger from this has come from. When I don't know if you've watched some of the um, the leaked footage, Eric, of some of these things that Disney executives are saying, or Disney people who work at Disney were saying about how they're explicitly pushing a particular understanding of sexuality, a particular understanding of what it means to be male, what it means to be female, in subtle ways, in nuanced ways. And this has been going on, by the way, for a very long time. Anyone who's a parent knows that you have to watch Disney stuff pretty carefully um, because there's all sorts of implicit messages that are built into much of their programming. And some of the – and, you know, that was pretty much confirmed with the revelations that came out with these uh, – Disney people talking about what they thought they should be doing and how they wanted to do it. So I think that's the trigger. So I get why people are furious about what has been revealed about the Disney Corporation, which is paid, by the way, I think a significant price in terms of a drop of share value as a consequence of this. Maybe Elon Musk should look into buying some Disney stock. <laughs> well, but but I think your point is in some res- is in many respects a very important one. This coarsening of political discourse in the United States that we see going on across the board, the the way in which the phrase racist is, is used today to describe people who are not racist. 
It is not racist, for example, to say, I think affirmative action is deeply problematic. That's not a racist statement. There's plenty of African-Americans who would agree with you that, that affirmative action is a deeply problematic type of policy. Um, the way in which we automatically label, uh, attach labels as a, to people as a way of trying to uh, marginalize them. The, the classic one, which I know we have to deal with all the time, uh, is... Uh, <laughs> is the you know, market fundamentalist, neoliberal. I mean, it's very clear that these expressions are being used as a way to try and shut down contributions from people that some other people disagree with. And, you know, so I found myself in many situations saying, well, what do you mean by market fundamentalist? Are you seriously, seriously suggesting that I believe that markets solve all problems or that I view the world entirely through an economic lens? That's just not true. So this coarsening of political culture, which I think is exacerbated by social media, encouraged to a certain extent by social media, it's everywhere now. Now, it's probably worth noting that... Uh, that it's not a new phenomenon in American politics. You can go back to the, the founding period, right? Remember what they used to say about people like uh, uh, some of the, in the 1800 election, the sorts of things that were being said about Jefferson or John Adams at the time, right? Some of the epithets that were being used to describe them. Or, uh, or even today when you find, for example, people saying things like, well, I have questions about... Um, a foreign policy that is, to my mind, uh, too inclined to look to military intervention as solving particular problems. Such people are automatically dismissed as, uh, you know, well, you're an isolationist or you clearly uh, don't care about America or whatever it happens to be. I mean, these, this is everywhere now and it makes civic discourse incredibly difficult or on the other side of your foreign policy example there and again going back to uh, it'll it'll come out next week the interview I did with Matthew Continetti um, where amongst those uh, either you know more skeptical of foreign intervention often libertarians any foreign policy suggestion that is uh, more hawkish than their position is immediately deemed neocon. It's neoconservative. And my my question in response to that is always, well, are you referring to the first, the second, or the third wave of neoconservatives? And often the answer I get is, I don't know. I'm like, yes, I know you don't know. Um, it is just being used as an epithet. Uh, what bothers me so much about this is the way that if you have a problem with the profligate use of racist out there, uh, the answer to it is not to look at what those people are doing, internalize their logic, and act the same way that they are. Um, it is not – even if you quote-unquote win, and in so many of these conversations – Winning is so ill-defined to me that I don't even know how to address the question. But even if you win, you know, wh what profits it a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? To in have engaged in such awful tactics in a way that I think is just not actually helpful um, in this case. So even if your goal is winning, you know, look at the law in Florida. Set aside what your personal beliefs on it are for a moment and just recognize it's incredibly popular. It is popular with people on the right. It is popular amongst Democrats. Right. And the <laughs> idea that you – the best way to play a strong hand if you are in support of that law is to act this way and start calling people groomers just doesn't make any sense. Just be vanilla about it because people are agreeing with you and they're on your side. Don't give them a reason to flee somewhere else because they think that you're acting in a in a disgusting way. And one other note, I think the you you had mentioned, you know, the Disney stuff and one of the explanations I see for why groomers should be applied here is that like, well, you know, it's the sexualizing of uh, of kids, so in a way, you know, they're making younger kids aware of and confronting them with this uh, sexual and gender ideology at an earlier point, in a way setting them up, they're now, you know, because they've been sexualized like this, they've been groomed in a way that's similar to what pedophiles do. Um that's just retconning. Like you have you've 
decided on an epithet and you're now working backwards for a definition that doesn't seem completely implausible. I just I don't buy all of this. I don't enjoy the way that the uh, conversation in this country has been going for a long time. And I don't think people who are using groomer are being uh, doing anything more to contribute to making things better than people who just freely use racist or any other epithet. Yeah, and of course, it's unfortunately, we live in an age where the type of argument you just made, you know, that takes a little wait, time to unfold, right? And we have a problem that people are sort of unwilling to listen <laughs> to explain people explaining why they think it's problematic to use these words. And then, of course, if you do raise that question, you're often accused of, well, no, you now you're just defending them, or you're one of them. <laughs> so, I mean, this is the, the degree to which political discourse, certainly and particularly as it's conducted through social media, the depths to which it has fallen is extra- are extraordinary. And I still think, unfortunately, we have some way to go before we even get lower. Unfortunately, I think you're right, Sam. So on that downer of a note, I guess that will be all from us today, and we'll call it a wrap there. I want to again remind you, uh, if you want us to answer your questions, email us at unwind at acton.org, or please go to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review, and in the comment, leave the question that you want us to address. We want to know what you think. We want to know what you want to hear from us. So please take advantage of that. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. Again, if you've been listening to this podcast on our website, please look down in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Sam for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>